Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 150 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, before we begin, I am oft reminded, through my nostalgic and childhood mind, of that moment in Finding Nemo, when I believe his name was Rocky, was the sea turtle in question, that Marlin was there, and he was asking Rocky how old he was for his son Nemo. And Rocky shouts back, 150, dude! That's still young! And Marlin's like, whoa, 150. But as I'm contemplating and processing that I have reached 150 episodes recorded, it's just one of those moments where I reflect and say, that's still young. I mean, one more step closer to 1,000. But as we continue through, we are in The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. We are in Chapter 8. Two weeks ago, we discovered and found out that Daisy, in her confusion and flurried and mixed emotionally conflicted mind, accidentally, and I put that in air quotes, murders Myrtle, the, the wife of Wilson, who got sick, became very controlling, she flees the scene. Daisy, unfortunately, happens to be the one behind the wheel and freaks out when this lady just walks into the middle of the road and is like, hey, somebody, you know, pick me up. Daisy's like, I'm just going to blow through this lady. And she does, kills her. Gatsby's in the car. Gatsby decides, oh, no, uh, we've just killed someone. And so he decides he's going to uh, drive off and uh, with her, and they're going to hide, stash the vehicle, and we're going to act like nothing happened. And so that whole thing happened with Gatsby and Daisy. Daisy decides to go, blah, 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 back to her house as if nothing had happened. But, of course, she's an emotional wreck at this point. I'm pretty sure um, we don't know 100% certain because Nick was peering through the window. Long story. Uh, But I'm pretty sure Daisy told Tom what had happened. And so I'm guessing at this point... She and Tom are hatching a plan to cover up this murder in some way. So Gatsby's still clutching on to Daisy, and I'm pretty sure at this point Daisy's moving back to Tom. I I, I don't see much hope for her and Gatsby as an item any longer, but I may be pleasantly surprised as we continue with Chapter 8 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Content warning. The following reading contains profanity. I couldn't sleep all night. A foghorn was groaning incessantly on the sound, and I tossed half-sick between grotesque reality and savage, frightening dreams. Toward dawn, I heard a taxi go up to Gatsby's drive, and immediately I jumped out of bed and began to dress. I felt that I had something to tell him, something to warn him about, and morning would be too late. 
Crossing his lawn, I saw that his front door was still open, and he was leaning against a table in the hall, heavy with dejection or sleep. Nothing happened, he said wanly. I waited, and about four o'clock she came to the window and stood there for a minute, and then turned out the light. His house had never seemed so enormous to me as it did that night when we hunted through the great rooms for cigarettes. We pushed aside curtains that were like pavilions, and felt over innumerable feet of dark wall for electrical light switches. Once I tumbled with a sort of splash upon the keys of a ghostly piano. There was an inexplicable amount of dust everywhere, and the rooms were musty, as though they hadn't been aired for many days. I found the humidor on an unfamiliar table, with two stale, dry cigarettes inside. Throwing open the French windows of the drawing room, we sat smoking out into the darkness. You ought to go away, I said. It's pretty certain they'll trace your car. Go away now, old sport? Go to Atlantic City for a week, or up to Montreal. He wouldn't consider it. He couldn't possibly leave Daisy until he knew what she was going to do. He was clutching at some last hope, and I couldn't bear to shake him free. It was this night that he told me the strange story of his youth with Dan Cody. Told it to me, because Jay Gadsby had broken up like glass against Tom's hard malice, and the long-secret extravaganza was played out. I think that he would have acknowledged anything now, without reserve, but he wanted to talk about Daisy. She was the first nice girl he had ever known. In various unrevealed capacities, he had come in contact with such people, but always with undiscernible barbed wire between. He found her excitingly desirable. He went to our house, at first with other officers from Camp Taylor, then alone. It amazed him. He had never been in such a beautiful house before. But what gave it an air of breathless intensity was that Daisy lived there. It was as casual a thing to her as his tent out at camp was to him. There was a ripe mystery about it. A hint of bedrooms upstairs more beautiful and cool than any other bedrooms, of gay and radiant activities taking place through its corridors, and of romances that were not musty and laid away already in lavender, but fresh and breathing and redolent of this year's shining motor cars and of dances whose flowers were scarcely withered. It excited him, too, that many men had already loved Daisy, it increased her value in his eyes. He felt their presence all about the house, pervading the air with the shades and echoes of still vibrant emotions. But he knew that he was in Daisy's house by a colossal accident. However glorious might be his future as Jay Gadsby, he was at present a penniless young man without a past, and at any moment the invisible cloak of his uniform might slip from his shoulders. So, he made the most of his time. He took what he could get, ravenously and unscrupulously. Eventually, he took Daisy one still October night. Took her, because he had no real right to touch her hand. He might have despised himself, 
for he had certainly taken her under false pretenses. I don't mean that he had traded on his phantom millions, but he had deliberately given Daisy a sense of security. He let her believe that he was a person from much, the same strata as herself, that he was fully able to take care of her. As a matter of fact, he had no such facilities. He had no comfortable family standing behind him, and he was liable, at the whim of an impersonal government, to be blown anywhere about the world. But he didn't despise himself, and it didn't turn out as he had imagined. He had intended, probably, to take what he could and go, but now he found that he had committed himself to the following of a grail. He knew that Daisy was extraordinary, but he didn't realize just how extraordinary a nice girl could be. She vanished into a rich house, into a rich, full life, leaving Gadsby nothing. He felt married to her. That was all. When they met again two days later, it was Gadsby who was breathless, who was somehow betrayed. Her porch was bright with the bought luxury of starshine. The wicker of the settee squeaked fashionably as she turned toward him and he kissed her curious and lovely mouth. She had caught a cold, and it made her voice huskier and more charming than ever. And Gadsby was overwhelmingly aware of the youth and mystery that wealth imprisons and preserves, of the freshness of many clothes, and of Daisy gleaming like silver, safe and proud above the hot struggles of the poor. I, I can't describe to you how surprised I was to find out I loved her old sport. I even hoped for a while that she'd throw me over. But she didn't, because she was in love with me too. She thought I knew a lot because I knew different things from her. Well, there I was, way off my ambitions, getting deeper in love every minute. And all of a sudden, I didn't care. What was the use of doing great things if I could have a better time telling her what I was going to do? On the last afternoon before he went abroad, he sat with Daisy in his arms for a long, silent time. It was a cold fall day, with fire in the room and her cheeks flushed. Now and then she moved and he changed his arm a little, and once he kissed her dark, shining hair. The afternoon had made them tranquil for a while, as if to give them a deep memory for the long parting the next day promised. They had never been closer in their month of love, nor communicated more profoundly one with another than when she brushed silent lips against his coat's shoulder or when he touched the end of her fingers gently, as though she were asleep. He did extraordinarily well in the war. He was a captain before he went to the front, and, following the Argonne battles, he got his majority and the command of the divisional machine guns. After the armistice, he tried frantically to get home, but some complication or misunderstanding sent him to Oxford instead. He was worried now, there was a quality of nervous despair in Daisy's letters. She didn't see why he couldn't come. 
She was feeling the pressure of the world outside, and she wanted to see him and feel his presence beside her and be reassured that she was doing the right thing after all. For Daisy was young, and her artificial world was redolent of orchids and pleasant, cheerful snobbery and orchestras which set the rhythm of the year, summing up the sadness and suggestiveness of life in new tunes. All night, the saxophones wailed the hopeless comment of the Beale Street Blues, while a hundred pairs of golden and silver slippers shuffled the shining dust. At the gray tea hour, there were always rooms that throbbed incessantly with low, sweet fever, while fresh faces drifted here and there like rose petals blown by the sad horns around the floor. Through this twilight universe, Daisy began to move again with the season. Suddenly, she was again keeping half a dozen dates a day with half a dozen men and drowsing asleep at dawn with the beads and chiffon of an evening dress tangled among dying orchids on the floor beside her bed. And all the time, something within her was crying for a decision. She wanted her life shaped now, immediately, and the decision must be made by some force of love, of money, of unquestionable practicality. That was close at hand. That force took shape in the middle of spring with the arrival of Tom Buchanan. There was a wholesome bulkiness about his person and his position, and Daisy was flattered. Doubtless there was a certain struggle and a certain relief. The letter reached Gadsby while he was still at Oxford. It was dawn now on Long Island, and we went about opening the rest of the windows downstairs, filling the house with gray-turning, gold-turning light. The shadow of a tree fell abruptly across the dew, and ghostly birds began to sing among the blue leaves. There was a slow, pleasant movement in the air, scarcely a wind, promising a cool, lovely day. I don't think she ever loved him. Gadsby turned around from a window and looked at me challengingly. You must remember, old sport, she was very excited this afternoon. He told her those things in a way that frightened her, that made it look as if I was some kind of cheap sharper, and the result was she hardly knew what she was saying. He sat down gloomily. Of course, she might have loved him just for a minute, when they were first married, and loved me more even then. Do you see? Suddenly, he came out with a curious remark. In any case, he said, it was just personal. What could you make of that, except to suspect some intensity in his conception of the affair that couldn't be measured? He came back from France when Tom and Daisy were still on their wedding trip and made a miserable but irresistible journey to Louisville on the last of his army pay. He stayed there a week, walking the streets where their footsteps had clicked together through the November night, and revisiting the out-of-the-way places to which they had driven in her white car. Just as Daisy's house had always seemed to him more mysterious and gay than other houses, 
So his idea of the city itself, even though she was gone from it, was pervaded with a melancholy beauty. He left feeling that if he had searched harder, he might have found her, that he was leaving her behind. The day coach, he was penniless now, was hot. He went out to the open vestibule and sat down on a folding chair, and the station slid away, and the backs of unfamiliar buildings moved by. Then, out into the spring fields where a yellow trolley raced them for a minute with people in it who might once have seen the pale magic of her face along the casual street. The track curved, and now it was going away from the sun, which, as it sank lower, seemed to spread itself in benediction over the vanishing city where she had drawn her breath. He stretched out his hand desperately, as if to snatch only a wisp of air, to save a fragment of the spot that she had made lovely for him. But it was all going by too fast now for his blurred eyes, and he knew that he had lost that part of it, the freshest and the best, forever. It was nine o'clock when we had finished breakfast and went out to the porch. The night had made a sharp difference in the weather, and there was an autumn flavor in the air. The gardener, the last one of Gatsby's former servants, came to the foot of the steps. I'm going to drain the pool today, Mr. Gatsby. Leaves will start falling pretty soon, and then there's always trouble with the pipes. Don't do it today, Gadsby answered. He turned to me apologetically. You know, old sport, I've never used that pool all summer. I looked at my watch and stood up. Twelve minutes to my train. I, I didn't want to go to the city. I wasn't worth a decent stroke of work, but it was more than that. I didn't want to leave Gadsby. I missed that train, and then another, before I could get myself away. I'll call you up. I said finally. Do, old sport. I'll call you about noon. We walked slowly down the steps. I suppose Daisy will call too? He looked at me anxiously as if he had hoped I'd corroborate this. I suppose so. Well, goodbye. We shook hands and I started away. Just before I reached the hedge, I remembered something and turned around. They're a rotten crowd, I shouted across the lawn. You're worth the whole damn bunch put together. I've always been glad I said that. It was the only compliment I ever gave him, because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. First, he nodded politely, and then his face broke into that radiant and understanding smile as if we had been in ecstatic cahoots on that fact all the time. His gorgeous pink rag of a suit made a bright spot of color against the white steps, and I thought of the night when I first came to his ancestral home, three months before. The lawn and drive had been crowded with the faces of those who guessed at his corruption, and he had stood on those steps, concealing his incorruptible dream as he waved them goodbye. I thanked him for his hospitality. We were always thanking him for that. I and the others. Goodbye, I called. I enjoyed breakfast, Gadsby. End of 
Part 1, Chapter 8 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. So, I don't know if this whole diatribe that that Gatsby went off on with Nick was designed, if it was designed to convince Nick that Daisy still had a heart for him and that she was going to leave Tom eventually anyway um, after telling Nick this story. But the more and more that I was listening to the story that Gatsby was telling Nick, the more I was convinced that Daisy is never leaving Tom. And in fact, she is going to stay with Tom indefinitely. I don't know if Gatsby was listening to the same story that Nick was, but I was hearing a story about a woman who, although was in love with Gatsby, it was a love plus type of relationship. She loved Gatsby, oh yeah, no doubt, for sure. But her love was contingent upon him being able to sustain her wealthy and lavish lifestyle. And Gatsby sadly could not live up to that standard, although somehow he was able to successfully hoodwink her into making her believe that he did come from a place of means. But luckily for him, he was saved by World War I. Said no one ever, because nobody wanted to use World War I as an excuse to postpone a relationship, but Gatsby needed World War I to further his, his plottings to try to convince this woman that he was worthy of her love even more. And so, you know, he actually found an identity outside of her during the war. He was very successful, um, had many wonderful military achievements. However, I don't know if this clerical error that took place or whatever it was that sent him to Oxford was true, or if it was just Gadsby getting cold feet, knowing that as soon as he got shipped back to America, he would have to face the reality that he was still a penniless man, and that uh, he didn't have a plan at the moment to try to figure out how he was going to gain the wealth that he needed uh, to woo Daisy back to him. But unfortunately, in this day and age, you snooze, you lose, buddy because letters was the fastest form of communication for them back then. I feel like a text message would have been more efficient, um, but it has smashed many literary um, models uh, for generations now, um, ever since the cell phone's inception, because instantaneous communication solves a lot of problems. So um, that's convenient that there was a lot of distance separating them, and snail mail was truly that slow. And so Daisy caves in to the societal pressures that young women of her age and means cave into, and goes back into the dating pool, finds a wonderful young man named Tom Buchanan, and, um, you know, just moves on with her life. You know, Gatsby's not responding to her, um, she doesn't know what's going on, why, if he truly loved her, why isn't he back? Um, and so, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that story, uh, that's the story that I heard. And Gatsby, I, I feel really sorry for the man. 
And if I was Nick, I'd call in sick from work at that moment in time. Like, I don't even know what he was doing. Like, all he had to do was call up his employer and be like, hey, so my best friend's girlfriend murdered a woman and my best friend is kind of taking it pretty hard right now. And by the way, doesn't really know if his woman actually loves her. So as you can imagine, he's in a little bit of a delicate mental state. I think I'm gonna take the day off. And you know, his employer would completely understand at that point. And um, who knows how this story would have continued should that phone call that he made to his employer actually held. But alas, Nick is overwhelmed. He has more of a spill-the-tea type of friendship with Gatsby at this point, with that very weak compliment that he gave to Gatsby at that moment. That was a really shallow compliment. Like, I get he was trying to be encouraging, but... Oof. Could have used some work. But um, I will continue to refrain uh, for the sake of time. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Next week, we continue through the casebook of Sherlock Holmes with a brand new adventure. The adventure of the Blanched Soldier is what is next in line, at least. So, until then, as they say in showbiz. For now, that's all he wrote.